I was guiding the tour that Sandra Bates' brother was a part of when he got his look into your precious Delver mirror, Spangler. He was perhaps 16, part of a high school group. I was going through the history of the glass and had just got to the part you would appreciate, extolling the flawless craftsmanship, the perfection of the glass itself, when the boy raised his hand. Um, but what about that black splotch in the upper left-hand corner? That looks like a mistake. And one of his friends asked him what he meant, so the Bates boy started to tell him, then stopped. He looked at the mirror very closely, pushing right up to the red velvet guard rope round the case. Then he looked behind him, as if what he had seen had been the reflection of someone, of someone in black, standing at his shoulder. It looked like a man, but I couldn't see the face. It's gone now. And that was all. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of The Mirror. In the last episode, we talked about uh, some of the uh, science of optics, about how mirrors work, why they work. We talked a little bit about uh, mirror psychology and some of the earliest mirrors from the archaeological record, specifically uh, obsidian mirrors found associated with the ancient proto-city of Chattelhoyuk in southern Anatolia. Yeah, and that uh, that cold read that we opened the episode with, that's an excerpt from Stephen King's wonderful Haunted Mirror short story, The Reaper's Image, collected in 1985's short story compilation, Skeleton Crew. So I highly recommend anyone who hasn't read that, uh, go read that story if you want a creepy mirror story. It, it, I, for my money, just as creepy as anything he ever wrote, you know, as creepy as the likes of The Boogeyman or The Jaunt. You know, I was saying in the last episode that I don't think it's an accident that there are so many horror movie scenes and ghost stories that involve a mirror. There there seems something really special about mirrors that uh, takes people's minds to, to supernatural and unsettling places, more so than other household objects. And I think it's pretty obvious why that would be, that there appears to be something alive on the other side of the mirror. And the mirror gives you, you know, it's not just that you see yourself and you see something animate in it, but that you can also see what behind you in a mirror yeah you it allows you to see things that you cannot directly see uh, and that's always been one of the attractive aspects of mirrors in everything from i mean the very practical usage of like we mentioned uh mirrors utilized uh, by the roadside and it turns and whatnot mm-hmm. so you can see who's coming or or even in um, in in corridors so you can see who is around the corner uh, two other things like uh, those those ridiculous gl- sunglasses that have little mirrors in them so you can see behind you Oh, I got some of those when I was a kid, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Or driving a car. Just think about it. The, the very act yeah. of driving a car, we're utilizing at least three different mirrors at all times. Uh, mm-hmm. It's I mean, it's just every day we take it for granted, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of strange when you think about it. Though, of course, at least the mirrors warn you that, um, that reality and reflection do not necessarily match up 100%. Oh, that's funny. If, like, every mirror came with a disclaimer the way the rearview mirrors on a car do. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Does not reflect reality. But as a segue to one of the first things we wanted to talk about today, it's worth noting that prehistoric Anatolia is not the only place uh, in the ancient world where there was the use of obsidian mirrors. That's right. Uh, Evidence of mirrors, and especially obsidian mirrors in Mesoamerica, date back at least as far as 600 BCE, 
Uh, there, there might be some earlier dates, but I think that was the earliest date I was, uh, I was coming across in my mm-hmm. research. And so they were used by the Maya, they were used by the Aztecs, and uh, when they were used by the Aztecs, particularly by Aztec priests, they were used in various uh, scrying rituals uh, in the worship of, of uh, the god Tezcatlipoca, uh, whose name actually means Lord of the Smoking Mirror. Uh, so there were black mirrors used by his priests, uh, and he has this just overall connection to dark volcanic obsidian. Yeah, and so scrying is a practice that's found in cultures and religions all throughout the world. Uh, the archetype example you see is gazing into the crystal ball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but scrying really refers to any form of uh, divination, prophecy, or revelation that uh, involves gazing into some kind of medium, uh, often a reflective medium such as a mirror or a crystal ball. Yeah, but uh, I would say one of the things about Tezcatlipoca is that like he is really the mirror deity par excellence because his name means smoking mirror. Like that's how closely connected he is with this. Um, he's he's a fascinating character. I think we've 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 mentioned him a few different times on the podcast. He's said to have lost his right foot in a battle against an earth monster, and as such, he's often depicted with a prosthesis of gleaming obsidian that may sometimes resemble a serpent. Wow. And uh, I decided to go a little deeper for this episode, so I was reading about him in a book uh, titled Tezcatlipoca, Trickster and Supreme Deity, edited by Aztec scholar Elizabeth Bacuadano. And in this book, in a chapter titled Enemy Brothers or Divine Twins, author Gilliam Oliver points out that Tezcatlipoca was associated, quote, with untamed space and night. Though his name is composed of two cultural elements, smoke, which comes from the epitome of cultural creations— Fire and the mirror, undoubtedly one of the manufactured objects whose creation is the most exciting. Mm. And now this is in comparison to the animal elements of his rival, uh, Quetzalcoatl, who we uh, discussed in at least, I think we did a couple of episodes on, uh, on, the, on the plumed serpent, did we not? Oh, absolutely. But I, I don't think I really understood this distinction before. So one way of thinking about them is that Quetzalcoatl embodies certain aspects of nature, whereas Tezcatlipoca Im- embodies something about technology or human artifice. Yeah, yeah. I believe that's the, that's the point here is that um, Quetzalcoatl is, you know, has these natural animal elements that are his makeup, whereas um, Tezcatlipoca is essentially a lord of artifact and invention. So yes, hmm. you know, the smoke is part of fire and fire does not require humans. Obsidian um, occurs on its own. Uh, but of course, both of these are brought to new heights by by human invention. You know, the polishing of the obsidian to make a mirror, the utilization of, of smoke and fire in, in other um, human activities. So you could, you could look at him as a god of technology. I know this is not intended by the people who created these ancient artworks, but some depictions of Tezcatlipoca do look like a robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes that art does have that, uh, that kind of appearance to it. Now, according to Michael E. Smith in, um, in that author's chapter in this book, uh, the archaeology of Tezcatlipoca, various items are associated with, with the cult of this deity. Uh, the most important are altars, ceramic flutes, and of course, obsidian mirrors, and the mirror is likely the most important. 
Uh, because on one hand, again, it's part of the God's name and identity. It's the substance of his prosthesis, and numerous cult items and costume elements associated with him were obsidian mirrors. Um, now, mirrors were sometimes associated with other Aztec gods, but apparently circular obsidian mirrors were just central to the worship and identity of Tezcatlipoca. Hmm. Now, one of the challenges to archaeological study of these mirrors, though, is that, as, as Smith points out, virtually none of them were found under modern archaeological standards. Um, and, and this becomes obvious when you consider uh, Dr. D's Aztec obsidian mirror, which is often brought up as like the most, one of the most famous examples of this, which has resided in England since at least the late 16th century. And during this time, it's traveled to other museums a bit, and I think has come as far as the United States on maybe two different occasions, but it certainly never returned to Mexico. So a lot of these mirrors have been in circulation for a, a while and were uncovered centuries ago. Now, are you aware of is anything actually known about the exact provenance of of John D's mirror? Like, like how by what route it came to him? Um, th there is. I have looked at the scholarship on that before. Yeah. So, I guess a couple of things to keep in mind about the mirrors. Uh, so, first of all, uh, there are, you'll also find rectangular obsidian mirrors in some collections that are tied to um, to Aztec uh, traditions. But some experts argue that these may not be pre-Hispanic. They may be post-conquest artifacts. Mm. Um, the The mirrors that you see in the various codices are are all circular. So that seems to be a distinction some of the experts are making. Now, the, the as for the magical speculum, as it's called, of Dr. D., um, that does uh, appear, I think all the experts agree, like that is, a, that is an, an actual Aztec artifact. Um, I think the previous owner prior to D is known. I can't remember how far back like the, the lineage of ownership is known. Um, but one of the things about the, a lot of these obsidian artifacts is you can, you can trace them back to where they came from. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, so it's, it's with a high degree of certainty, uh, that this particular artifact is traced back to Mexico. Is that tracing by geological means? Yes, yes. It's, yeah. yeah, it's my understanding that you can geologically trace the obsidian to it to at least a certain degree. Yeah. Now, one of the things that Smith points out about the magical speculum of Dr. D, which is where it's worth looking up a picture of this. I think I've described it before on the show. If you didn't know what you're looking at, you might think it was a component for like an Ikea coffee table. It's not, it's not something that instantly looks ancient it's um it's it's very plain and um and functional in many respects it is a circular mirror with kind of a notch at the top with a hole in it and apparently as smith points out that the hole at the top of that artifact is likely there so it could be worn as an amulet across the chest which is something that we see in the codices hmm so there seem to have largely been two standardized uh, types or sizes of these mirrors. There was one size that was intended to adorn a sculpture, and then others like this, like the one that came into Dr. D's possession, that was worn as an ornament by priests. But it's also possible that size norms changed over time. Now, Nicholas J. Saunders and Elizabeth uh, Bacuadano write, quote, These reflective devices were powerfully ambiguous, not least because they shone with a quote-unquote dark light. They partook of what has been called a pan-amerindian, uh, quote, aesthetic of brilliance, which accorded sacredness and power to a multimedia assemblage of shiny objects, the material metaphors of access to and control of the glowing spirit realm from whence status and political power flowed. Mm. And they also write that, quote, 
A presence of absence defines the ambivalent nature of Tezcatlipoca, the supreme deity of the late post-classic Aztec pantheon, in the dark ephemeral reflection of his obsidian mirror, in the transient sound of his ceramic flower pipes, lies the sensuous nature of a god who mediates materiality and invisibility with omniscience and omnipresence. So a couple of years ago, I actually was lucky enough to see uh, uh, John Dee's mirror, uh, the Aztec obsidian mirror from his collection in the British Museum. It's on display there among uh, the the collection of Dr. Dee's treasures. And I recall, yeah, looking into it, you can get a, a rather unsettling feeling where you, you could imagine how a person could could feel the, the power from the other realm flowing out from this, this sort of conduit or gateway. Yeah, yeah, this mirror is, uh, it, I, I think I've mentioned before, I may have seen it when I visited the British Museum, but I did not know about its existence, so I have no specific memory of, of seeing it. Uh, and again, if you don't know what you're looking for, or you happen to sort of breeze past it, you might not pay that much attention to it. But yeah, it's it's part of the British Museum collection. Uh, again, has traveled a little bit, but but not, I don't think, extensively. Uh, so if you visit the British Museum today, there's a good chance you'll be able to find it. They also have it um, on their website. Now, um, I want to mention one more thing from that book. Um, There's a chapter in there by Susan Milbrath titled The Maya Lord of the Smoking Mirror. And this this paper deals primarily with Kawil, the the Maya form of this same deity. Uh, But in it, the author writes that the mirrors were indeed used in acts of divination. Priests and magicians would use the mirrors to gaze into the future. Quote, his obsidian mirror appears in an Aztec account describing a mirror or uh, Tezcatl, that showed the, quote, stars and fire drill, a constellation, even though it was daytime, and then revealed an omen forecasting the Spanish invasion. And so they point out that the, the mirror's role in divination may be linked with astrology because Tezcatlipoca had numerous astronomical avatars. So it's interesting. We see this idea of, uh, of reflections in the mirror. It's, you know, it's, it's clearly associated with reflections of us, but also reflections of um, of the cosmos. I think that's that's fascinating. And then you get into the idea of the darkness of obsidian, I guess, being like the darkness betwixt the stars. Ooh, yeah. Now, as we talked about in the last episode, there were also uh, obsidian mirrors on the other side of the Atlantic in the ancient world. Uh, so the earliest mirror artifacts known of are probably these obsidian discs from uh, prehistoric Anatolia. But I was wondering, okay, where did mirror technology go after that? So uh, I was turning back to a sort of catalog of, of different early mirror finds that are uh, listed in a paper by J.M. Enoch in the Journal of Optometry and Vision Science in 2006 called History of Mirrors Dating Back 8,000 Years. And Enoch notes a few types of artifacts from ancient Egypt that have been interpreted as possible mirrors but but are not quite certain. For example, the English Egyptologist Flinders Petrie suggested that uh, stone palettes in pre-dynastic Egypt could have been turned into mirrors by wetting them. So you might have a an artifact that just looks like kind of a flat stone disc and that by wetting this disc you could turn it into a rough mirror. Also, uh, Egyptologist Christine Lilliquist argued that ancient Egyptians may have used ceramic bowls that could be filled with water to function as mirrors inside the home. Hmm. And Lilliquist cites uh, findings at El Badari, which is a site along the Nile in Upper Egypt with a number of artifacts from pre-dynastic times. I think this is 
one of the earliest sites that shows evidence of agriculture in in pre-dynastic Egypt, um, but that uh, around El Badari there is possible evidence of early mirrors, including quote a slab of selenite with traces of wood as a possible frame, um, and a slate disc, also a piece of reflective mica pierced with a hole, a possible wall attachment. But moving on from here, you start to get signs of metal mirrors, uh, which are obviously, you can just imagine, are going to have a, a very different quality than, say, a wet stone would. So by the time period of roughly the 4th millennium BCE, so 4000 to 3000 BCE, there is some evidence of metal mirrors in the ancient Near East. And this includes small copper discs possibly used as mirrors that are found in southern Mesopotamia in what is today Iraq, uh, for example, around the ancient city-state of Ur. And when I was looking around at these examples, it seems perhaps most or maybe even all of the mirrors recovered from around 3000 BCE in Mesopotamia were copper mirrors. Uh, But by the third millennium BCE and moving forward, there are a number of examples of metal mirrors found in Egypt, usually copper early on. And then as as the years go on, there are more copper alloys, and these would fall into the classification of bronze mirrors. But also, by the third millennium BCE, there are not only these scant artifacts, but actually records of mirrors. So this means mirrors evoked as a concept in texts and in artistic imagery. Mm Mm-hmm. So Enoch includes some examples of ancient Egyptian artwork from tombs that appears to show mirrors. Uh, For example, Rob, I've got one uh, you can look at here. Uh, This is figure three in front of you, but I'll try to describe. It is detail from the tomb of Meraruka at uh, Saqqara. And so this would have been the sixth dynasty of Egypt, roughly 2300 to 2250 BCE. And what you see is sort of a line of figures depicted in that profile style. Um, and they're doing, they're, they're holding up objects uh, at each other. And I think this may be showing a sequence of the same figures uh, interacting across time. But one of the objects they're holding up, it looks like, well, what is that? Is that a ping pong paddle? No, it's probably a mirror. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see it. I mean, they're, they're holding it up uh, to their faces uh, as if looking at their own reflection. And way, way back into history, uh, it's clear that mirrors contain not just their practical functions, their use in cosmetics and stuff, but also their religious significance. Uh, Enoch notes that it's extremely common across all of these cultures for mirrors to be associated with some kind of supernatural power, to be associated with the gods, or to have some kind of uh, use in divination or, or association with the soul. He writes, quote, they served as symbols of the sun or moon and may have been carried on tops of standards. A one-sided flattened disc symbolized a setting or rising sun. Mirrors were sometimes used to symbolize the inner self. They also provided a way to look back. Mm, yeah, this is all especially interesting considering the, the ancient Egyptians, who, of course, uh, were a very solar-oriented uh, um uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything that reflects sunlight is going to potentially have some real value. Uh, you know, I think we've discussed in the show before about the, uh, you know, the idea that the, the, the great pyramids were once um, uh, covered in a more reflective surface so that they would have, they would have, you know, it wouldn't have been like a mirror, but they would have definitely reflected uh, the brilliance of the sun during the day. Yeah, it would have been amazing to be alive at a time when you could have seen that. Yeah. 
Um, but hey, so there's another thing I came across while uh, while reading up for this episode that I really wanted to do a digression on uh, that has less to do with the technology of a mirror, but I think actually does tie into maybe a lot of these uh, these religious uses of mirrors that we see throughout the ages. And this is an effect of mirrors that has come to be known as the strange face in the mirror effect. Mm, yeah, yeah, and this is this is great because it's it's one we can certainly take all of this and apply it to the mirrors that surround us today. But then if we're talking about these various older variations of the mirror uh, that are maybe smokier, darker, um, mm-hmm. smaller, um, uh, the, it allows even more room for ambiguity. Yeah. So a while back, I did an episode of the artifact that I called the psychedelic blindfold. I, I don't know if you ever got a chance to listen to this one, Rob, but it was one that I've been thinking about a lot ever since. And in in fact, though it's called the psychedelic blindfold, there's actually nothing special about the blindfold that was used in the study, except that it basically blocks out all light. Uh, what was really special about this research was the amount of time that the blindfold was worn. Uh, the basic finding in this study, again, this was uh, published in the year 2004 in the Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology. The basic finding was that subjects who were blindfolded for days at a time started to have elaborate visual hallucinations. And the most interesting part to me was not just that they were hallucinating, but that sometimes they started to visually hallucinate roughly accurate percepts based on other senses. So that might include uh, perceptions of their own limbs or objects that they were manipulating, like a pitcher of water on a table or other people in the room with them, that they would get pictures of things that were actually there. And this to me raises interesting questions about what sight really is. What if you are seeing things in your brain and those things are not whole cloth fabrications, but roughly accurate perceptions of real objects around you, except they're not based on light received through the eyes, but based on other senses and cognition. So maybe your proprioception, you know, your internal sense of where the rest of your body is causes you to hallucinate visual imagery of your body parts in the right places or your ability to feel objects around you like a pitcher of water in your hand causes you to hallucinate that pitcher except it's basically an accurate visual stimulus you're getting it's just not based on light yeah this is a fascinating uh, area of contemplation it gets back to something we've we've we've, uh, we've touched on before the idea that we think of ourselves we we often use technological metaphors we often think about our visual perception as being that of a uh, like a security camera, it is it is filming the world and preserving uh, that uh, that site data as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, the more we look at it, the more we realize that this is not the case. We have we certainly have have visual data coming in, but then we have the we have other senses involved. We have memory employed, and there's a great deal of, of filling in the blanks and the sort of cultivation of an internal model of reality. I think that's very well put, and that's really going to be relevant to what I'm about to bring up. So all that was preamble to a really interesting series of studies that I was just getting into about the potential psychedelic power of mirrors, much like the potential psychedelic power of a blindfold. Um, and, And another thing about this that's interesting is that there are a number of urban legends and folk beliefs about 
supernatural apparitions that will manifest in a mirror under the right conditions. One example I came across, I was reading an article in Scientific American. Uh, One of the authors of this article was named Susanna Martinez-Condé. And she talks about how uh, 30 years ago when she was a child growing up in Spain, she said that uh, there was a, there was like a, a superstition that anyone could see the devil's face. And what you had to do to see the devil's face was stare at your own face in the mirror at the stroke of midnight. And then you would say the devil's name when, when midnight tolls, and then you would see the devil in the mirror. Yeah. This is kind of the, uh, the, the bloody Mary effect you could call right. it. Uh, I, I, I got to admit, I, I actually remember when I was a child, I, for a, I don't know how long this went on for some period of time, I got absolutely terrified about Bloody Mary after a a kid that I was I was at some summer camp and some guy was telling me about Bloody Mary and uh and after hearing that I remember I was just like petrified of being alone in a room with a mirror. I remember this too. Yeah. I I was thinking about this recently because after we recorded the first episode, I was telling my son uh, who, just, who just entered fourth grade? I was telling him about the fish and uh, and the Borges uh, uh, short story yeah. about the creatures in the mirror, and uh, you know, he wasn't terrified or anything of it. But he was started asking questions, and then I started thinking back to Bloody Mary and so forth. I'm like, oh wow, I need to be careful here. He's yeah. <laughs> he's just the right age where I, I need to I need to make sure I cultivate his imagination just so uh, mm-hmm. so that he's not afraid of mirrors. Well, you know, it's funny. Like I've heard a million ghost stories by that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Why was that the one that that got the hooks in me, and and other ones weren't? It's a great question. I mean, on one hand, I think I think part of it is that the mirror is at the center of it, and the mirror. Yeah is poorly understood by all of us. It is this weirdness that we just kind of stop asking questions about. And then if you you add something to the scenario, uh, you can easily bring that spookiness back into the forefront, you know? Yeah. But then also, w- with with a lot of like the Bloody Mary type stuff, we tend to, and it involves not just a mirror, but also uh, low light or mm-hmm. a fr- flickering candlelight, which is just going to augment uh, the, the the various effects that we're talking about here. Um, it can already be weird enough to stare at your own face in the mirror uh, for a, you know a minute at a time, but add in flickering and alterating uh, candlelight, uh, throw in low light, and, and as well as this this script of the supernatural layered on top of everything, and yeah, it can start feeling a little freaky. It's funny how much what you say is is conforming to the study I'm about to bring up. Uh, uh, though I should report, by the way, that um, Susanna Martinez-Condé, she says in the article that when she tried to see the devil's face in the mirror as a child, nothing happened. So, you know, uh, you win some, you lose some. But you got to play um, a little less more in the background, too. I think. That right. <laughs> um, but but given certain recent psychological research, I think there could be some plausible reasons to assume that some legends like this of seeing faces in the mirror, seeing the devil or seeing Bloody Mary are based on real experiences that some people had because you you can get yourself into a very vulnerable state when you're staring into a mirror, especially with in, in low light conditions. And then on top of that, there are apparently special effects of staring at a face in a mirror uh, that manifest as a, a, a very common predisposition to hallucinate. Uh, as far as I can tell, this effect was first observed by a psychologist named Giovanni Caputo, of the University of Urbino, Italy, and published in a report in the journal Perception in 2010. The paper was called Strange Face in the Mirror Illusion. 
So in this study, uh, Caputo recruited 50 subjects who were all in their 20s, a range of uh, 21 to 29 years of age, and they didn't know what was being tested. What happened is Caputo would place them in a dimly lit room, so it was illuminated only by a 25-watt incandescent light that was placed on the floor behind the subject. And then they were asked to stare into a mirror that was about 0.4 meters, which is about 1.3 feet in front of them, and then just to keep looking at their own reflection, staring into their own face for 10 minutes. That's it. No drugs, no other alterations of consciousness, just a dimly lit room staring in your, at your own face in a mirror for 10 minutes. And then afterwards, they were asked to write about the experience and report anything that they remembered about it. And the results reported by Caputo are extremely striking. The majority of subjects reported at least one of a number of different kinds of broad, uh, per perceptually strange or even hallucinatory experiences. Uh, so to read from the study, quote, Descriptions differed greatly across individuals and included a huge deformations of one's own face reported by 66% of the 50 participants B a parent's face with traits changed 18% of whom 8% were still alive and 10% were deceased C an unknown person 28% D an archetypal face, such as that of an old woman, a child, or a portrait of an ancestor, 28%. E, an animal face, such as that of a cat, pig, or lion, 18%. Or F, fantastical and monstrous beings, 48%. So it, it, like a lot of people get monsters in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's impressive and, and really not surprising at all. I think if anyone has, has spent any amount of time I mean, we've all spent time looking at ourselves in the mirror, I think enough to realize, yeah, the more that you look at yourself, the weirder you look. Um, and most of us will leave that situation before you get to the monster scenario. You're more likely to check out when you start seeing, uh, when you start noticing resemblance to parents and so forth. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I think I've looked at my mirror enough. I think I checked on what I came here to check yeah. on, and now I'm going to go do something else. But 10 minutes, that's, that's some serious time. And uh, Caputo also reported that there were effects beyond the purely visual distortions and hallucinations. There were also sort of conceptual disruptions and, and strong emotional reactions and feelings uh, that, that people experienced staring into the mirror like this. Uh, again, to read from his results, quote, the participants reported that apparition of new faces in the mirror caused sensations of otherness when the new face appeared to be that of another unknown person or strange other looking at him or her from within or beyond the mirror. All 50 participants experienced some form of this dissociative identity effect, at least for some apparition of strange faces and often reported strong emotional responses in these instances." And and I thought this was interesting. So it's saying that like even for people who didn't note any, any visual distortions or visual hallucinations, they did report at least some kind of feeling of dissociation with the face that was looking back at them. Uh, but coming back to the results, quote, for example, some observers felt that the other watched them with an enigmatic expression, a situation that they found astonishing. Some participants saw a malign expression on the other face and became anxious. Other participants felt that the other was smiling or cheerful and experienced positive emotions in response. The apparition of deceased parents or of archetypal portraits produced feelings of silent query. 
apparition of monstrous beings uh, produced fear or disturbance. Dynamic deformations of the new faces, like pulsations or shrinking, smiling or grinding, produced an overall sense of inquietude for things out of control. So these kinds of emotional reactions, I, I think, make sense, especially given that uh, that so many people were, were seeing some kind of visual disturbance or hallucination. Uh, but to come back to the visual perceptions themselves, what could possibly explain this bizarre effect? You look at your own face over time and it starts to kind of transform into other things. You see other people's faces. Maybe you see a cat face or a monster face. Maybe you become a minotaur. Maybe you become your grandfather. Uh, you know, th this is this is strange. So, like, what could be leading to this? So Caputo offers a few ideas. Uh, first of all, the the disappearance or attenuation of face traits could very well be caused by what's known as Troxler fading. Uh, this is a name for a very well-documented optical illusion that goes like this. Okay, if you, if you fixate your gaze on a particular point without moving it, unchanging visual stimuli in the periphery will tend to fade away the longer you stare at that one fixation point. This was observed by the 18th century English physician and polymath Erasmus Darwin, who was the grandfather of Charles Darwin. Uh, but it gets its name after being uh, uh, discussed by a Swiss physician named Ignaz Paul Vital Troxler in the early 1800s, who did some experiments with patches of color against a screen or a wall. Uh, but if you want to try this out for yourself, there are tons of, you know, there are the little like stimulus images that you can look up on the internet. Just Google Troxler fading or Troxler illusion. T-R-O-X-L-E-R, uh, and you should be able to find something you can try out. Rob, I, I quite easily experienced this illusion. I've got one uh, I'm looking at here that is a really menacing, grinning Cheshire cat face, but it's got an X right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And if I stare at the X, I think really it only takes about five seconds before the colors of the cat face fade to almost nothing. All right, staring at the X on its nose intently. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like the pupils disappear for me yeah. pretty pretty quickly. I'd say for me, after about five or six seconds of intense staring at the X, the the face is gone, but the teeth remain. I only oh, yeah. see the grin. And after about like five to ten minutes, it's telling me to go out and remove traffic signs. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a haunting face to stare into too much. I feel great. I've got a brand new religion. I'm uh, about to go buy some meow mix in bulk. <laughs> well, the Cheshire Cat, I think we discussed this a little bit in our Medusa episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, like, this is, a, this is a Gorgon. This is a, a Gorgon's mm. face that we're staring at here. It's, a, it's just a, 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 um, a repackaging of the same concept. I mean, not, not that that has anything to do with the, the optical effect going on here, <laughs> but at any rate. Uh, so Troxler fading is a specific example of of a broader phenomenon of neural adaptation, the the desensitization of sensory neurons to unchanging stimuli. And you can think of other examples that are where, where there are similar effects of this. So maybe tactile feelings, like you know, if you um, put a finger on part of your arm, you will feel the touch of your own finger when it first lands there. But if you just leave it there, you kind of stop noticing it. Um, yeah. similar thing with smells, uh, you know, all kinds of stimuli. If you're just getting the same sense stimulus over and over again without changing, often it will fade into nothing in your awareness. Right. It's like, well, like with the smell, for example, the idea is you're being alerted to this smell because 
something about it is important, like maybe it's potentially dangerous, etc. But if you're around it enough, it's like it's like the brain has decided, okay, he gets the point. We've sent the memo. We've done all we can mm-hmm. do. We just have to trust that he is. He either knows that this uh, this particular smell is is not poison, or he's done something about it. Right, and so that does seem to be an explanation for what's going on generally with Troxler fading. You, you stare at a single point, and then other things in the visual field, if you're really staring intently, you're not moving your eyes around, you're not blinking. Those other colors, those other images, they just kind of like fade away over time. You, you're, you get used to them, and then they're just gone. But this is not the full answer to the question, right? Because uh, so Caputo's interpretive section continues to say that Troxler fading – might be a good explanation for why, like, outer features of the face might seem to fade or disappear or possibly distort while we're fixated on a central point, like if you're staring at your own nose or staring at your own eyes very intently. But a lot of the subjects reported not only fading or distortion of the outer parts of the face, but the sensation of totally new visual traits, such as, you know, like different features or animal faces, monster faces, the faces of other people. And this part is more difficult to explain. Caputo and and other co-authors have done subsequent research following up on the the strange face-in-the-mirror effect. Uh, But the exact cause of these perceptions does remain somewhat obscure, at least as far as I can tell. A part of the explanation could have to do with the long-gazing process causing a disruption of the mental faculty that normally combines individual face traits like nose, eyes, lips, and so forth – into a unified experience of a face. You know, that's something you probably know from experience that like when you see a face, you tend to see it as a face, not as the individual parts of a face. Right. And and this is something though, I find when I am just staring at another person's face for too long, Mm -hmm. I stop seeing it as a unified face. And I start, it's kind of like, it's almost like you're seeing just parts of the face floating around, you know, like yeah. you're no longer seeing the face altogether. And it's a weird feeling. And I have to look away from the person's face at that point. Oh, you ever like you gaze at somebody's eyes too long and you, you maybe somebody who you find beautiful and you love their beautiful eyes. And then you look too long and those eyes become eyeballs and then you <laughs> see them as organs. Right. And this yeah. is, you know, the, the sclera and the, they've got some kind of jelly inside them. And then you're like, oh, oh, no, I did it. I did the I did the bad. Yeah, and then you see the skull beneath the flesh, and it's all done. Uh, but to read from Caputo's interpretation of, of what could possibly be causing the – again, it's, it's not really fully understood. But uh, in his original study in 2010, Caputo says, quote, This long-term viewing of face stimuli of marginal strength – remember, that's especially because uh, the low-light conditions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, may generate a haphazard assembly of face traits that generate deformed faces or scrambled faces – Frequent apparitions of strange faces of known or unknown people support the idea that the illusion involves a high-level mechanism that is specific to global face processing. On the other hand, the frequent apparition of fantastical and monstrous beings and of animal faces cannot, in our opinion, be explained by any actual theory of face processing. Hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's still big questions about what exactly leads to this effect. It might have something to do with uh, with transition points, say like maybe you're staring at a central part of the reflection, you're looking at your own eyes or something, and then troxler fading kicks in and the outer parts of the face start to kind of fade away and you lose some color definition and, and stuff like that. And then, and then the visual stimulus is suddenly restored when you 
blink or you move your eyes or something and that that part that is faded away snaps back into focus maybe something in that transition causes you to see something weird perhaps there are gaps there and the brain does some strange filling in process but we don't really know but what we do know for sure is that this phenomenon is actually not contained simply to mirror gazing you can recreate similar effects by having people gaze directly into other people's faces for 10 minutes in low light. Uh, this was explored in another paper that Caputo published in 2013 called Strange Face Illusions During Intersubjective Gazing. So people just looking at each other's faces. This was published in uh, Consciousness and Cognition. So it definitely happened with pairs of other people. So it seems like the mirror is not really the special part. The real keys are faces as stimulus, either yours or somebody else's, long exposure times, just uninterrupted staring, and low light. Uh, so what makes mirrors special in this regard is that they are a tool that anybody can use to try to experience these strange face effects, you know, without having to recruit somebody else who is game for a really awkward experiment. <laughs> Yeah, now the the idea of yeah, two people's faces for 10 minutes low light. I mean, essentially this is this is any date night scenario, right? <laughs> uh, but I guess the beauty of date night is that you know, ideally you have maybe a beverage, you have some sort of at least an appetizer. There mm. there's people watching uh, or, you know, ideally there's people watching, there's maybe art on the walls, there are other things to captivate your attention. And then mm. you can keep coming back to the person across from you. It's not, it's not some sort of a, you know, just a, a, a like a, a blank cell that you find yourself engaging with this person in. Right. I don't want to, you know, I don't like to be judgmental, but I'm going to say if you're doing date night this way, you're doing it wrong. You, you, <laughs> yeah. know, you should not stare uninterrupted without moving your eyes or blinking at somebody's face for 10 minutes. Though it sounds like it's the kind of thing that could be a dating fad, right? Like yeah. if someone's like, look, date, a normal dating scenario, you're just not able to bond with the person. You need just yeah. 10 minutes Boring. of yeah. uninterrupted um, uh, facial viewing. And, uh, and then you'll know whether this is your soulmate or not, or if it is right. a minotaur. You can't really love me until you've seen me as a minotaur. Right. Though, interestingly enough, that's like a show now where there, there's some sort of a dating show where both people are, um, are covered in like heavy monster effects makeup. Wait, so, what? Yeah, yeah. Are like, you I serious? Forget, I am serious. It's a show on Netflix. I, I have not watched it, <laughs> but I watched the trailer for it. And the, the trailer was amusing. Um, mm -hmm. It at least has some cool monster like makeup effect stuff. So it'll yeah. be like, uh, you know, two individuals, they're doing a blind date thing, mm -hmm. except one is made up like a bird woman and the other is, I don't know, like a, like a baseball headed mutant, that sort of thing. A baseball headed mutant. I like it. Yeah. I, I can't wait till this like back reflects onto the pickup line process and stuff. It's like, <laughs> you know, darling, I let me be your pumpkin head. <laughs> there may be a pumpkin head in it. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners will have to report back because again, I'm not going to actually watch this show. Just one more thing I wanted to mention before wrapping up on the, the strange face in the mirror research. Uh, I, so I said that uh, Caputo has done a number of studies following up on this and reproducing it in different contexts since then. Uh, one that I thought was interesting uh, was published in the Journal of Trauma and Dissociation in the year 2019 uh, called Strange Face Illusions During Eye-to-Eye -Eye Gazing in Dyad, Specific Effects on Derealization, Depersonalization, and Dissociative Identity. Uh, again, the study reproduced the findings with some new areas of focus. But the main thing I wanted to mention from this one was that 15 of the test subjects here were sketch artists who were later asked to <laughs> reproduce their best approximation of some of the strange faces they saw. And Rob, here you go. You, you can uh, 
you can tell me what you think of these. One I really like is uh, a guy with a furry face with glasses and his eyes have mustaches. <laughs> that one, yeah, that one looks pretty creepy and has kind of a, you know, a blank isn't real and can't hurt you kind of a vibe to it. Yeah. As does the the big vacant eyed lizard man looking face. And then one of them is just kind of a Muppet and the other one um, just kind of looks like a caricature. The monstrous monkey woman. That's what the, uh, the yeah, big eyed yeah, yeah. one is called here. Yeah. No, I think you're looking at the alien face. The monstrous monkey one is the, the furry the Muppet? one. Oh, okay. I like the Muppet one. Yeah, the, the monstrous yeah. monkey woman then. Doesn't look very monstrous to me. It looks, looks adorable. It looks great. Let this monkey woman teach children about the alphabet. It, this, this should be on Sesame Street. <laughs> now, uh, it's, uh, oh, man, there, there's so many additional directions to go in from this. On one hand, we should point out that, um, you know, it's worth noting that there are other reasons that a face in a mirror may be extra unnerving. Um, there's, uh, of course, what is often referred to as mirrored self-misidentification. And this is the, the delusion that one's reflection in a mirror is some manner of double or a relative mm-hmm. or something of that nature, but not a reflection of yourself. And this is actually a right uh, hemisphere cranial dysfunction uh, that I think is often tied to like uh, you know, major brain disease or some sort of a you know traumatic injury to the head. I mean, another way of of recontextualizing what we've just been talking about is that um, faces are powerful. Faces are powerful and profound stimuli that can cause powerful and profound reactions in the brain. And mirrors are a way of getting lots of access to face stimuli uh, without, you know, in the, in the privacy of your own bathroom, you know, without anybody judging you or judging you for staring at them, say. You know, I think I would love to hear from anyone out there whose profession requires them to make um, eye contact or just stare at people's faces for this kind of an extended amount of time. Because mm-hmm. on one hand, and granted, we we do all of our recordings through Zoom now, but, you know, used to, it's like part of our whole thing is we have these long conversations about topics, um, you know, used to in the same room. But we're also looking at, at other things. You know, maybe we're looking yeah. over to Seth to make sure the recording's going okay. Or we're, we're certainly looking at our notes to see where we are in the outline, uh, you know, or even you know, looking elsewhere in the room. But I realize, like, some people are in a profession where, uh, like, maybe they're a um, you know, therapist or, or something, and mm-hmm. they maybe have to make prolonged eye contact, prolonged, uh, you know, face-to-face communication. What is that like? Do you find yourself susceptible to some of these effects? Yeah. What is the appropriate amount of face staring? I mean, too little can seem like maybe you're not making an effort to connect with somebody and too much is creepy and invasive. Like, you know, balancing that, I think, is one of those uh, those ongoing social ballets we always have to manage. Yeah. Like, you don't want to talk to somebody who refuses to make eye contact with you. Mm-hmm. But if the eye contact is just too like unflinching, it can feel a bit too intense, you know. Yeah. It feels like you're playing a game of um, of uh, of eyeballs chicken with them, you know, and, and uh, it's no fun. No eyeball chicken, no eyeball road rage. You know, you gotta you gotta manage right of way. Uh, this reminds me of something we talked about in a previous episode about sunglasses, about how if um, if an individual is wearing sunglasses, uh, the uh, other people are more inclined to believe that that person is staring at them versus if they were not wearing sunglasses at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, well, again, we are we're creatures that are hyper aware of staring, um, that, that know the, the power of staring and a certain amount of eye contact is required. Uh, but, yeah, there's this careful balance that has to be um, uh, in effect. And then you throw mirrors into this whole scenario and it just 
it makes everything a little stranger. And I think that's one of the the big the big take homes that we we keep coming back to with mirrors is mirrors make reality a little bit stranger, and in doing so, reveal strength strange things about our reality. Like one of those things is that you don't really have a face. You have you are to a certain extent just this assemblage of right. of uh, of organs on the front of a head, and. We don't think about it, but if you stare in a mirror long enough, you might come to realize that. Likewise, uh, you know, realizations about um, you know how much you look like uh, like a parent or a family member, or like uh, some you know random celebrity face, or some face in a painting, or even the face of a beast or a monster. Very true. The the concept of a face is a kind of blessed hallucination that we're always able to you know we're usually able to maintain instead of just allowing the. The, the face hallucination to decompose into various contours of meat and bone. Maybe that's one of the, re- you know, we came back, we've discussed this, I think, in both episodes, why why the mirror is so often uh, in the toolkit of the magician and the priest hmm. and the soothsayer and so forth. And I think part of it is you could see the mirror as a very basic tool for breaking reality or at least bending reality. You know, it is a, it is a means of, of not only you know creating effects and creating illusions, but also uh, uh, taking uh, uh, the potency out of the the ever present illusion of the way we perceive the world. Yeah, I think we're gonna have to keep thinking about this, and we're gonna have to come back in part three because there's more mirrors yes. to come. Oh, we have so much more. Yeah, there's so much so much to talk about with this one. I, I mean, I'd be I'd be perfectly happy to to do this one for you know four or five episodes. So we'll just we'll see we'll see how how much gas is in the tank, but. Uh, but yeah, we'll definitely be back with a part three. Uh, maybe the Oculus will make you forget all of your past and you'll have to do <laughs> six, seven, eight, just on for eternity. Ooh, I don't know if I could watch Oculus again. Uh, I found it to be a very enjoyable horror movie, but but a troubling one. So uh, I wish there were more haunted mirror movies. I don't know that there have been a lot of them. I was looking around the other day and I think I found one from the, maybe this God, I can't remember which decade, 60s, 70s, or 80s, somewhere in that 30-year period. But there aren't as many as you might think. I think there were, there may be some various uh, anthology episodes concerning mirrors. I just Googled haunted mirror movie, got a selection of movie posters and covers. They all look really terrible. Which is strange. I mean, I guess it's also um, totally understandable because on one hand, it seems easy. Like, oh, you just need a creepy mirror. Just go mm-hmm. buy a mirror, make a mirror. Uh, you know, just as this prop that doesn't actually move. But yeah, you get into how you shoot mirrors and how you use the mirror to make things you know creepier and it gets a little more complicated. I guess that's why maybe weird scenes with mirrors are, are largely more memorable. You know, like I think of... Um, I think of the, like the old, uh, the, like the nineteen was it nineteen seventies Macbeth adaptation has a great sequence with a mirror mm. in it. Uh, so stuff of that nature comes to mind. Hmm. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it now. We're going to put the um, uh, you know going to put the cloth back over the haunted mirror. But we'll be back uh, to discuss our reflections some more in the next episode. In the meantime, if you would like more stuff to blow your mind, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the stuff to blow your mind feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have artifacts on Wednesdays. Stuff to blow your mind on Monday and on Fridays. We do a little Weird House Cinema. That's our time to talk about some strange and interesting film. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.